0: Welcome, everyone, to Sunday service here at Ananda Village. We're out in the amphitheater by Lotus Lake, and it's lovely. And it's really probably only 75 degrees. (laughs) I am Nayaswami Parvati, and this is Nayaswami Pranaba, and we're very happy to be with you today. I'd like to read from Rays of the One Light, written by Swami Kriyananda, but based on Paramhansa Yogananda's teachings and commentaries, from the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. The topic this week... Oh, and also before I read, I'd like to welcome all of our guests and visitors and those who are here for the first time and everyone. The topic this week is self-reliance versus (laughs) self-reliance. Got that? (laughs) Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within... The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. Last week, we considered the need for attunement with God, with the gurus, with the wisdom of others, until we make that wisdom our own. There is a strong and, in fact, valid belief nowadays in the need for standing on one's own feet rather than depending on others to carry us by their strength. Swami Kriyananda was once asked, "Which, what is the best yoga posture? That one, he replied, which sets you squarely on your own two feet. Our strength must come from within. If that strength comes from the ego, however, instead of from soul consciousness, it is like a guitar string without its sounding board. The notes it emits will be thin and feeble. Our strength must come from within, but must be coupled with recognition of our inner link with broader and higher realities. The Bhagavad Gita in the 10th chapter says, Everyone in this world whose life is glorious or prosperous or powerful know that his achievement is but a little spark From the great sun of my my effulgence. Jesus, in talking to his disciples, emphasized also the power of attunement with his own consciousness as a ray of the divine. For this ray had descended already through him in response to their devotion. It was a sign that God was already listening to them with receptive attention. And did not require to be wooed any way that long in that way any longer. In the passage preceding the one we read last week, Jesus said, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit." Now ye are clean. Through the word which I have spoken unto you, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. This was the meaning of Paramhansa Yogananda's counsel also when speaking more intimately to the disciples of the need for attunement with him thus through holy scripture God has spoken to mankind oh
1: Normally at this time we read from Whispers from Eternity, which is Paramahansa Yogananda's book of Prayer Demands. But this morning I'd like to read to you from his book of poems, Songs of the Soul. When I smile, thou dost smile through me. When I cry, in me thou dost weep. When I wake, thou greetest me. When I walk, thou art with me. Thou dost smile and weep. Thou dost wake and walk. Like me, my likeness thou. But when I dream, thou art awake. When I stumble, thou art sure. When I die, thou art my life. Very sweet and very deep poem. You know, the journey that we're on spiritually is not so much a journey with a destination. It's more of a journey of becoming who, who we really are in this moment. And that is sort of one of those things that indicates that it's easy to be confused on the spiritual path. There's a lot of things that we hear in one way, and maybe it's not quite the point. Or even if we hear things, uh, for instance like, Meditation should really have the emphasis of relaxation. And then we hear, but meditation is the most dynamic activity you'll ever be involved in. Uh, We hear that we should serve actively. And yet we're told, but don't be trapped in the action itself. You know, have nishkam karma, action without the fruits of those actions, the desire for the fruits of those actions. Or if you've read Swami Kriyananda's book, The New Path, He reveals when he was with Yogananda out in 29 Palms, when Yogananda was working on the commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Swami Kriyananda had the blessing to sit in on some of those dictations. And he would hear Yogananda reveal a deep commentary on some sloka from the Gita. And then he said sometime later he would hear Yogananda say something that was opposing what he had said earlier. And wouldn't that be confusing? I mean, Swami Krenanda said he was confused, because certainly in the West we have more of the tendency, but it's worldwide to a degree, that we want things either or. The truth is going to be this way and not that way. And that's really just depending on where, which self we're relying on. Is it the little self with the ego, or is the higher self with the soul, with the divine? You know, one time we were on pilgrimage to India years ago, Parvadeen and myself, and we were up in Dhirudhan visiting uh, Swami uh, Gyanananda, who I think is still alive. Um, but he came to the work in India from Switzerland and became a monk in the Yogoda Satsanga uh, Monastery, the uh, Self-Realization Fellowship uh, version over in India. And he had long gone... Uh, went off on his own, and he was living in this property in Diradun, which is, as I said, north of Rishikesh. And we were having a kirtan with him, our group of pilgrims, and he was leading a style of chanting that certainly I'd never heard before and certainly wasn't familiar to most of the people. Uh, He would bang on the harmonium as sort of his tabla and, and do other things. And uh, he had this little dog, which a lot of people call yapper dogs, Uh, just a tiny little dog that yap most of the time if it was awake. And and it was with us in his little kutir, the little cabin um, that he had, and he was leading the chanting in his unusual way. And uh, so I started clapping, because, you know, a lot of us do that, especially with the Indian chanting. And then... Uh, he sort of paused on the harmonium and put his hand in my lap, and all I could hear, because everyone was continuing chanting, was clapping. And so I thought, he's meaning for me to clap more. So I started clapping more. And then he stopped and said, No clapping, it disturbs the dog. (laughs) How are we to know? (laughs) But... As it says in the reading, the more we're able to tune into that intuitive side. Now, I thought I was being intuitive with that dog, but um, the more we're going to get the right place in, um, in where we're going. And again, the journey isn't about getting somewhere. The journey is, journey is really uncovering to who we are, as I said. So the important thing is to really find that higher self and not be pulled by the lower self. So the lower self is the ego, It's going to uh, want to have us somewhat confused, actually, at times, so that we don't go further on the spiritual journey. So the ego can come in and and really invite us to be a part of spiritual activities, but they may not be the appropriate ones for us to really grow spiritually. You can see why it's confusing. Uh, Not everything put before us is really that which we need to follow. We need to have guidance from a guru, from a true path, and from that connection with our intuition. When I was um, uh, thinking about this, I was reading in The Essence of the Bhagavad Gita, Swami Kriyananda's commentaries on the explanation that Yogananda gave on the Bhagavad Gita. And there's this one point where Krishna is talking to Arjuna, and he promises basically that he'll be there for him, meaning he'll be there for every devotee. And it talk, and Arjuna's questioning, what if I fail? What happens if I don't make it through? And in the commentary, Swami Kriyananda talks about that there's three types of failure for the devotee. Uh, very interesting understanding. And the first one is where it's like the devotee that comes and has deep inspiration from the connection maybe comes to a place like Ananda Village or some other part of Ananda or wherever that might be. And there's a deep, powerful experience that's coming from inspiration. And the feeling is, I'll never leave this. This is mine forever. And they leave. And that happens, for those that have lived at Ananda Village, we've seen it numerous times with deep, sincerity and intention, someone is trying to open that experience. But in a sense, as Swami Kriyanandavan said, there's not enough glue to make that adhesive quality. The soul is perhaps just touching on that spiritual life, just becoming awakened to it. But the ego and the lower self have much more of a momentum. There's much more habit that's involved from that lower part of who we are and that will pull us back into that. If you know the story that the Bhagavad Gita comes from, the Mahabharata, um, the qualities, the names that are evoked in the understanding of that great epic uh, are often qualities that are within our own selves in the battlefield psychologically that are warring against each other uh, in our own experience. And one of the characters is called Dronacharya, often just known as Drona. And Drona reflects the psychological quality of habit. And in the story, Drona trains the other archers. He trains Arjuna. He trains Karna. uh, And he trains all these warriors to be great warriors. And when the battle is going to ensue, when the war within ourselves is going to take place, everyone chooses which side? There's no neutral space. There is just this effort on everyone's part to see where they're going to land. Either the forces of light, of coming back into the soul qualities, or the forces of ego and with materialism. And Drona ends up choosing to be on the, sides, on the side of materialism with the ego. Because he's habit. Habit in its natural setting will default to that. Now we can use habit, and again this can be confusing, Uh, we can use habit in the right way. For instance, Yogananda said it's good to set up your meditation periods the same every day, especially in the beginning. Don't waver when you're going to meditate. Try to establish at least those two important longer meditations at the same time every day. He said that will secure you in the momentum of forces beyond your own intention to support that experience of meditation. But that idea that what we want to do is really go to the experience itself of what's the deeper and highest part of who we are is really the critical part here. So that person coming in that's deeply inspired may not have that habit uh, of naturally being in that spiritual depth. And so there's that coming and going. There's a wonderful chant of uh, Yogananda's um, I will be thine always. And the second verse is devotees may come, devotees may go, but I will be thine always. So the devotees coming and going, of course that's going to happen. The pull of habit, the pull of duality, the pull of delusion is pretty intense. And if that habit is strongly, even though there's intention to go otherwise, the habits will pull you back into maya. And so that's not bad because even to take those steps on the spiritual journey to say this is real to me, even if I falter and go away from that, that's a powerful step, a powerful energy that will be there. The soul call is nurtured even with that small connection with true spirit. And that soul call will come again. It may be as it says in the Gita, Many lifetimes, though. So whenever you're inspired, don't just leave it inspiration. Go to the experience behind the inspiration. So there is that one type of person, the devotee, that is going to be short of that union with God in this lifetime. The second type of devotee is one that comes on the path, goes further than just being inspired, and has tremendous zeal and energy to really get on with the spiritual path. But that starts to wane. And suddenly there's less effort. And often it comes from not being non-attached. It's being attached to the magic of the spiritual path. We've read about uh, Yogananda himself being touched on the chest by his guru, Shukta Shwar, and going into ecstasy. And so we have this sense, me too. You know, how long will it be? I've been meditating three months. How come there isn't more evidence in this journey here? And we start to wobble. We start to still continue maybe our sadness, perhaps continue with our devotional practices, but we have pulled back. It's more something that we're doing rather than something that we are immersed in. And it's said that the difficult challenge for that devotee is when end of life happens. There can tend to be a wistful yearning for the worldly uh, experiences at that point. Just the, the romance of life, you know, the sweetness of this activity or that experience, the family connections, the relationships, all those things start to hearken. And the soul in that devotee starts to forget what's really there for him. And will leave with the sense of, but if I could only have done this or that in my life. And it's said that for that devotee, he still will go to a high place in the astral world once he leaves his body. And there will be a sense of of duality in the astral plane, of the longing for the world and an awareness of the spiritual realm. But that devotee will need to come back with karma unfulfilled. But still, that's pretty amazing to think of how far that particular soul has gone to even endeavor to continue the practices without being alive in them. Not as much power, of course, as we know could be there, but still a blessing. Swami Kriyananda once said that he had great respect for any devotee that simply continued on their spiritual path, no matter what they did or didn't do. That he said, That person, that devotee, should deserve tremendous respect just hanging in there. But the third type of devotee that doesn't reach their goal of oneness in God before leaving the body is one that has, with great fervor, great attunement, living from the higher self, not the lower self, but living completely, not getting into plateaus, but always being refreshed, refined in that experience but they just don't make it at the end of that lifetime. Now, keep in mind, Yogananda promised each and, one, each and every one of us that in this lifetime, we can attain the state of a jivan mukta, meaning liberated in this lifetime, freed in this lifetime, freed from the ego. So it's possible. The thing is not to hold the expectation of that, but be open to it. That's a little bit confusing, right? We want to be open to it. The moment we have the expectation, we will sense more of the separation. It is in our expectations that we lose really who we are in a deeper and higher way. Because we want the magic. We want this to happen. And it's really in God's hands and in God's time that that will take place. Our role is simply to keep moving forward, but not to be sufficiently okay with the plateaus, but to always find, how do we refresh this? And it's said that the devotee that leaves the body before achieving the state of jivan mukta, in the astral plane, he's at the highest level in that experience, and he's able to enjoy the real soul connection there. And two things happen for that soul. Either he stays there because it's so rewarding in and of itself in the astral plane, or he quickly sees, I need to reincarnate, not because of my karma, but to be freed from any lingering wisp of karma. There's no karma that's accrued so much as just the past karma, much like a Jiban mukta, very close in that way, and to be free in that way. But this idea of being open without expectation is something to really work on. It's not something that's black and white for us. It's not that, oh yeah, this is obvious. Even our intuition can be fooled. But work with that. It's a powerful thing to keep in mind. Because as the days, weeks, months, years go by for a devotee, We don't want to lose what's really happening. We don't want to miss the point, as Patanjali expresses in the Yoga Sutras. We want to be open. We want to be always alive. I remember one time uh, the ministers here at Ananda Village were meeting with Swami Kriyananda, and someone mentioned, one of the ministers, who had been here a number of years, said that uh, they never saw the spiritual eye. And probably a lot of you are saying, well, me too, me too. <laughs> you know. But nobody expressed it as boldly as this one man. And um, And Swami's response was interesting. He said, that's all right. But always be open to the experience, but don't expect that to be there. And so it was very interesting. So I've worked with that a lot, even with the spiritual eye, that open always up to that possibility. But if it doesn't happen that doesn't diminish the experience. Now that's a challenge. That's not easy if those rewards, even though they're subtle and spiritual, aren't taking place in our lives. But really this is the ideal of nishkam karma, even with meditation, to meditate without the desire for the fruits of meditation. It is a blessing in and of itself just to offer ourselves in the experience of meditation, and then to extrapolate that into everything we are involved in, in every outward activity, even in our sleep, in our dreams, to bring that experience of offering, of opening up to that that true ideal of who we are, one in God. When I was a young boy, I had some challenging situations with riding a two-wheeler bike. And I vaguely remember falling in a not too comfortable way from the bike. And so for a number of years, I didn't participate in bike riding. Um, But when I was about 10, somehow I felt the urge again to get on a bike. And I did, and it was fine, I never fell. It was like freedom appeared in my life. It was really that strong an experience. In summertime, my parents never saw me. My bike saw me a lot. And I had what we called in those days a clunker. Now remember, everyone just had one-speed bicycles when I grew up. Occasionally some richer kids had a three-speed bicycle, and ten-speed bicycles were what you saw in bicycle shops and that adults rode around. But we had one-speed bikes, and mine was larger than normal, so... My tippy-toes could barely ever touch the ground, so I always had to be a curbside when I had to stop or something. Um, But literally, it was freedom. I just, in the summertime, I would just go, and usually I'd be gone six, seven hours, and I'd bicycle probably for about six of those hours, or I'd go 30, 40, 50 miles every day as an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old. And I'd always try to get my friends to come with me until they heard how how far I wanted to go. I remember this one time with one of my close friends, I said, let's go to um, this this place. Uh, and it had a name. Well, there was a, a similar name to this park that wasn't even half the distance. And he thought, that's a long way, but I'll go with you. And then I said, oh, not to that place, this other place. And he said, I'll go with you as far as the first place. And that was it. But it was later, I took my little rucksack, because I didn't have backpacks back then, and just put... Um, can, a military canteen of water, and threw a, a sandwich in there, and that was it. Never told my parents where I was going. They never asked when I got home. Um, but just, it was like, really, my first experience of soul freedom. It was just no hindrance. I could just go. Well, when I first learned to meditate when I was 18, I had a similar, but much more of a freedom experience. It really felt like... Um, The first day wasn't like that so much, but really in the first days after learning to meditate, it felt freedom. Because it was acknowledging and tuning into the shift from the little self into something much grander, much more expansive, that higher self. From the ego being really the motivating factor to really releasing and opening up to something much more real, much more in in my soul a deep connection. And I really felt that, that something was happening that was going to be important for the rest of my life. And so the way that we really can tune in to relying on the higher self is not only through meditation, but having a meditative focus every moment. To bring alive what meditation is touching on, but to continue that. So we're not having to struggle through the day and do what we have to do to get through it. And then we'll get home and we get to meditate, um, build up some momentum, and then the next day we have to go to work and do things. But no, the meditation is a a big step. The outward activity is perhaps not as big, but it should be in that same direction. I remember um, when I took my yoga teacher training, which was in 1980. It was one of the first ones that we offered here, and it was up at the meditation retreat because this didn't exist at that time at the expanding light. But I remember we um, we had an instructor who's no longer involved with Ananda, but uh, once a week we had an afternoon with advanced yoga with him, and I think a lot of us had a large or grand intrepidation about this. You know, we were like, oh my God. I know I can touch my toes in a few of the poses, but advanced yoga. And luckily the first session he said, now remember, what we're talking about in terms of advanced yoga is doing the simplest of the asanas with complete awareness. That's advanced yoga. And then he went on to talk about a sequence called outhouse yoga because we didn't have indoor bathrooms back then up there. But he said, don't let yoga be something that's confined to... um, We didn't have yoga mats then, so I couldn't say on your mat. um, But shouldn't be confined to those isolated times during the day where you do the asanas. Yoga should be something you're always doing. So he said, when you have to go to the outhouse, so you could transfer indoor bathroom in our situation, um, let your movements be a flow of that awareness of the divine. So as he went towards the bathroom door he did the first part of Parastasana and then as he sat he did the chair pose uh, and at the end he did you know Parvatasana and you know it was just like he made it light and amusing but besides the specifics of the yoga postures it, it dawned on me well of course it has to be how we live our lives as devotees. That it's not waiting for the time or the place to do our practice. It's being alive in who we are, that's our practice. And every moment should be infused with that sense of this experience is now always with God. Not, I'm going to wait until I get to this point or this place or this time. But no, alive now in that experience. Because then we bear the fruit, always, that our attunement to that tree with its limbs, its branches, we're going to be always connected in that way. And we'll become more and more just the tree itself and not even the extension of the branch. We become alive because there is no separation between us and that tree bearing the fruit. We're completely unified. We're completely in that experience. And our hearts are alive in that. And let's remember that. Let's always open ourselves to the experience, but let go of the expectation and let God be with us.